Welcome to How to Sell an Agency, the podcast sharing real stories from founders who have sold their agency business. I'm Matt Bennett. I'm a built and sold agency founder myself. I now work as an advisor, mentor, and non-exec for other agencies. Today's episode, though, is all about Jonathan Smith. Jonathan is managing partner at Draft Partners, a growth and M&A advisory for agencies. We're mostly, though, talking about Jonathan's earlier journey, building, growing, and selling his agency Catch, and how the way they ran Catch led to them attracting and securing a private equity-based sale. Here's Jonathan Smith on how to sell an agency. Thanks for joining me, Jonathan. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Pleasure to be here. So could you start by telling us a bit about Catch, how the agency started and what it was that you did? Yeah, sure. So Catch is a a digital platform agency focused on UX, UI, technical development and optimization, usually of large-scale website platforms. That's not quite how it started. That's more what we evolved into, although design and development was at the very heart of, of what we did. But going all the way back to 2006, I'd left a digital agency that I'd been at for a few years uh, to take a break and go traveling and, and figure out what I wanted to do next. I came back from traveling, needed some money. Um, so I started freelancing and just through my own network, got a few jobs designing and building various different products for all kinds of weird and wonderful brands, some directly with the brands themselves, others through agencies that needed some help delivering something digital. Um, because back then, none of the larger agencies really had fully fledged digital departments as yet. And I'm a proud generalist, I guess, by virtue of starting out in the industry in the early noughties, there were no specialisms. So I knew enough about web development, front and back end development, UX design, SEO. And I was just head down delivering the work I was being given for freelancing. I did that for six months or so. I took on possibly a little bit more than I could handle. And I, I really just started taking on help, collaborating with other freelancers to begin with. I was still getting more work. So ultimately, fast forward a few months, that turned into an agency pretty quickly decided to actually make it a bit more professional looking rather than a ragtag bunch of freelancers. So Catch officially launched in May 2007 with Arthur One, which was me full time. And in June, so a few weeks later, the stock market crashed, which was great timing to start a new. Fantastic timing. But I actually think that helped us. So we had the lowest of overheads. I was sharing an office space in Soho and TV and print budgets were being flashed. So a new website, email campaign or banner ad seemed like quite good value in comparison. We were, I guess we were really well placed to be able to produce highly optimized content managed websites or email campaigns or banner ads, frankly, for way less money than the other agencies were were able to. And we just grew our customer base through referral, through word of mouth. We always got an agreement with our clients to put our logo at the bottom of whatever we were creating. Oh yeah, I'd forgotten about those days of we all got a nice visible credit at the bottom of every website. And that was really important, actually. And I think just because of my own top level knowledge of SEO, that really fundamentally started the journey to us ranking really highly for some Mm -hmm. very competitive term. Um, And one of those terms was Digital Agency London. And we had to rank at least P1 to 3 for the best part of 10 to 15 years for that. And that I can't put a value on how many leads that brought us a year, but it was huge because ultimately, no matter how big or small an organization you are, if if your procurement department has been tasked with procuring a new agency uh, to send a tender out to uh, a selection of agencies, at some point, you've probably typed in Digital Agency London to get that long list to then go through the shortlisting process. 
And frankly, that, that was our best source of leads for sure. So what kind of businesses were coming to you through that inbound search? Um, well, to be honest, a huge range of all kinds of different organizations from the kind of mom and pop type small businesses through to, in fact, one of our first clients was Cret Nicholson, the homes developer, where we were doing an inordinate amount of email campaigns and sending emails every month for them, which was hellishly repetitive, but it gave us a really nice fundamental retainer to the, the bedrock of kind of financial stability for us, which mm. is amazing because at that point, I think we were probably only three people, three people full-time. And I, even myself, I knew a bit of um, CSS and, and HTML. So I was coding those emails helping design those emails, sending them out through campaign monitor as it was back then. Mm -hmm. And we really very rarely turned any work down because we were very much aware of the state of the economy. But like I said, I actually think that ended up working out quite well for us. So we managed to grow to two to three to five to 10 people with it in the first couple of years. Yeah, we grew organically. We never took on any debt or acquired another agency. And then fast forward to 2012 and we won, I guess what I'd call our first whale client. One of those clients every agency has in their dory that really helped turn things around for them and, and perhaps got them to be a bit more visible in terms of the work they were doing. And ours was called Coty, which is the international beauty company. And we designed and built the Rimmel London website and rolled it out internationally across 21 markets, 14 different languages. And in the process of doing that, we became quite experienced in building these large scale content managed websites. So that that's an amazing client to be landing. But there's probably a missing part in the story there that some people will see that you were talking about, but well, this comes in from organic search, or a lot of our inquiries come in from organic search. But there is this perception that you'll never get a client like that through those means. And that's something I hear a lot as someone with an SEO background as well. Well, big companies don't buy by typing into Google. Yeah, what well, some of the biggest companies we worked with over the 15 years that I was running, they're from Sharp to Rimmel to Sally Hansen to the World Wildlife Fund, all came through finding us on Google. Of course, the web presence is incredibly important when you talk about your portfolio and your services and how you present yourself. But ultimately, all of these organizations, especially the, the larger ones, need to create that long list of potential agencies to work with. There's, goes without saying, there's a huge process of hoop jumping you need to go through yeah. to actually get through to pitch stage. But that's how we got Coty. That's how we got Sharp. That's how we do WWF. And I would say that the majority actually of, of most of those brands we've, you can see on, on the website would have come through that organic search through, really through the term Digital Agency London. I was always very keen to understand from the clients how they found us. And I'd always make sure that I always asked that within the first couple of conversations I had purely for knowledge about how our yeah. sales and marketing and SEO efforts were, were working. And I got to say nine times out of 10, they just said, oh, I must have typed in Digital Agency London or something similar. We would spend several hours each month optimizing the site to make sure that we, we stayed that way. Some months we were number one, other months we'd drop down to maybe P8, but being on that yeah. page was instrumental for our strategy. It was our strategy to acquire new clients, to be honest. How, how much sleep did you lose on those times where you were kind of heading down towards the bottom of page one, I guess, if, if it's that narrower? It was never a good feeling because obviously it's not an exact science and it's not never been within Google's best interest to very transparently explain exactly how the algorithm works. Yeah. So, um, the, the worst times of anxiety were around the major algorithm updates and changes that they were making. But we, yeah, we did well being on page one for the majority of the time. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I speak to a lot of people who just SEO is not considered to be a source of new business at all. 
And if it is, it's seen as being, well, it's, it's the lowest quality leads. It's the businesses who can't find anything. And it's, it's not the case. Although I know a lot of SEO consultants that would argue against that point. Yeah, it's, it's hugely important. Certainly it was on our growth journey. It was incredibly uh, important to, to catch. Yeah. So fast forwarding. Yeah. How did the business change over its life? Yeah, I think going back to the point about 2012, winning Coty, that really was quite transformational for us as a client. Suddenly we'd got this well-known cool brand in our portfolio. That was great to be able to promote ourselves using that. Everyone knew the ad with Kate Moss saying, get the London book. That was very much something that we we could use for, for promotion. And off the back of that, we had other brands in the fashion and beauty world asking us to build similar large scale, optimized multi-language websites. So in the period of two years, we went from working on brands with very little presence and politely saying this, but small to medium budgets to Mm -hmm. much larger international brands with decent budgets, usually always with a large web platform at the heart of what we were designing and building, but then with content and optimization wrapped around. So we grew those clients from the initial project, the brief that we would answer would be to build their, their main kind of web platform online to then a retained relationship where we would support and optimize with our international clients. We would often do the content uh, and the content um, translations as well. So our foundation was always the design, build and optimization of of the websites. 60, 70% of our revenue came through the technical development and the rest came through the kind of support UX, UI as well. Obviously, it's important too. And what did the team look like at that point? How did you break people down into those kind of the disciplines and areas? We've really always kept it simple. We, we have three distinct teams. Picture pre-COVID time, but obviously big open plan office. Yes. So we, we didn't really have silos as such, but it was a much easier sell to explain to potential clients about the way that we break down our kind of core specialisms into teams. So we had our XD team, our experience design team, so UX, UI. We had our development team, the front end, back end, and we included in-house testing QA capability within that team and the client services team, the client services team, fundamentally project management focused. So we kept that very simple. Separately to that, of course, we had our admin back office team, finance team as well. But fundamentally, the kind of the the big three hero teams were client service, Mm -hmm. XD and dev, as we called it, all working together in agency agile, as I'm sure that Everyone in the agency world um, listening to this will be familiar with. It's not quite pure agile and it's not waterfall. It's somewhere in between. And that whole process would be adapted really on a per-client basis. Some just would demand a more waterfall approach and others, our favorite clients, would allow us to have more of an agile lean approach where we'd be able to work billing in sprints. We'd always be working in sprints internally, but whether or not that was fully communicated in that way, it was certainly billed against in sprinting. It was actually quite a rare occasion. But interestingly, some of the larger organizations we worked with, so the BBC, we worked on designing, building and optimizing BBC Good Food, which is one of the big longer term retained projects we had. They were all good with agile approach. They understood that. They knew that that could really deliver value for them. And interestingly, it was some of our smaller clients that were more fearful of an agile approach, I think. Maybe there's um, a lack of understanding about the benefits. So we'd be constantly be finding ourselves trying to educate clients on the benefits of, of delivering in an iterative way, which became much easier towards certainly 2022 when I left last year. That was almost a given, whereas you tried educating someone about that in 2016, 2015, and it made very little sense to, to most clients. So is it a, a mindset or an approach that it's been trickling down quite slowly for yeah, quite a long time, isn't it? 
I think so. But I think also it's fundamentally now at brands, you know, you don't really talk about, oh, there's a digital department because digital is now inherent in the way that every organization delivers. If you're a nail care fashion brand, if you're a Japanese electronics manufacturer, and we've had all of these clients and everything in between. But I think one of the things potentially that's changed is actually just the cycle of new staff coming in that potentially may have worked at an agency or have more of a digital literacy background. So a newer, younger generation coming in, just the natural ebb and flow of changing actually ended up making our job, certainly through in procurement terms anyway, easier because I was finding that I was having to spend a lot less time on explaining the benefits of how we worked and I could spend more time on actually how we would add value, what services are complementary to those services that they might have in-house already. That was another really big change that we saw was from being an outsourced, complete turnkey solution or a brand that just has a, a marketing department that's been tasked with getting them, let's say, a new website or an app. And they would have only very top level digital knowledge and relying on us entirely to tell them it up in terms of how they should be proceeding to then having a much higher level of digital literacy on, on the client side. And us really, our happy place was really working as a trusted advisor rather than a kind of client supplier relationship. That was always our happy place where we felt that we were really adding value as part of their team. We used to talk about there not being the client team, and the agency team. We were just one team delivering together. And that really only became possible probably in the last kind of five or six years or so. Before that, it was very much, here's the brief, go away digital wizards and do something that will blow us away. But there was very little kind of interaction between, mm-hmm. mainly because I guess a lack of understanding about the, the user experience or technical development or optimization. Whereas yeah. clients we had, the best relationships we had were the ones where we really felt like we were just an extension of their team. We'd have shared black channels in some instances. So it, yeah, it really felt like sometimes in the agency actually was, was much bigger than just the 30 odd people that we were because we had a bunch of sort of clients on our teams. And came yeah. we clients in our office working for us, or they would loan us developers or designers that we had to then integrate into our team, which was sometimes quite tricky. But it- uh, that trusted advisor role is, you know, it, that's really aspirational for a, a lot of people trying to get to that point with clients. Do you think that's something you were able to actively influence much? Did you learn how to bring that about? Or was it just that some clients were ready for that relationship and, and some weren't? I think it was a mix of both. There was definitely, in the way that we spoke about how we would like to engage with clients. I was always very mindful to make sure that from the very beginning of even that first phone call, which would usually involve me, that first initial chemistry call, I'd be talking about how we would work together, not just, yes, that's right, we can build you this app or we can optimize that website or build that platform. And in fact, quite often I I would start with the relationship rather than actually the output because the the majority of the projects that we did, certainly for the last eight years or so, they're big. They're quite large mm. scale. They can take a year potentially to deliver. So there is a really big in-depth relationship you end up having with your key point of contact and their team on the client side. So that chemistry is hugely important. And you could feel that almost straight through. Either you're hitting it off or yeah. not. Either you're understanding the, what we're trying to do in terms of deliver for you in an iterative way or, or you don't. And that's not saying that we would 
be so arrogant to be able to pick and choose our clients, but we definitely had the opportunity and being in a, you know, a nice situation of, of being a, a successfully, a successful well-run agency where we were able to actually think, do you know what, this client actually, this, they're not right for us at this time. I, I would always regularly say that we quite possibly could have been two or three times bigger in half the time had we just taken everything that came our way. It would have been really stressful and the quality of work would not have been yeah. where it should be. And the work probably would not have been interesting either. So uh, I was always very much of the viewpoint that I would like to work at an agency that has the type of work that I like to get out of bed in the morning and do, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And I very much tried to live by that right up until even when the agency sold and I was going through the earn out and integration with Sideshow. And, but I think that's so important. Um, so we, we weren't the biggest agency in the world, but I think we had quite a big presence and, and were, mm. had the ability to work with big brands through our kind of successful delivery method, really. So you mentioned there the sales of Sideshow. Show. It sounds like it was a great business. You were doing work, you enjoyed doing, you know, we, we've spoken, you, you've enjoyed the space, the team, all of it. Was it always a, the plan to sell? It was always in the back of my mind to sell at some point. But like I said, I, I was enjoying the work, being part of the growth story. It was rewarding. It was fun. It was a really social place. It is still is a really social place. Like obviously, COVID is always going to have a negative impact on teams, on the ability just to get in a room with people. And it's great to see that slowly, but surely coming back. Yeah. I still think it's nowhere near as it was pre 2020, but it was fun. It was a social life as well. It was lots of pub sessions and lunches and having a, a great office in the center of Soho for 15 years was very much strategically part of the attraction and retention of the best staff. And yeah. it's where I wanted to work. I wanted to be in Sarah. It's a fun place. We flirted a few times at maybe moving to Clarkenwell or Farringdon, but we always came back to the idea of having the agency in Soho. And it was always Soho for you, wasn't yeah, it? Always, From start yeah. to, yeah. Yeah. For, so our first office was on Rupert Street in 2007. And the last office was, we had so many different offices, I think five in total, moving everywhere yeah. from opposite Liberty to being just off Carnaby Street. But yeah, it was, it was such a great, creative vibe and everybody that came for an interview or a supplier or a client would always comment on just how fantastic the space was. And our, our most recent space when I was there was on Great Pulteney Street, which is just behind Golden Square. So it's, it was just such a great location. And genuinely, I would say that definitely helped us attract and retain such a great, high quality, fun-loving group of individuals. That was really important to me personally, but I think it also helps hire people that have that same mentality of having frolics. I really hate that term. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. friends mixed into one. So that Well, we spend a huge part of our lives with the people we work with. So I've always seen it as one of the advantages of running your own business is you get to choose the people you work with. And I had a rule. I'm not saying we would always, you know, have to go out for drinks, but I wouldn't hire anyone that I wouldn't go out for a drink with. <laughs> and the drinks are optional, but if everyone says yes, I want to make sure it's a good time. Yeah. So yeah, why, why not? Absolutely. Although there definitely times are changing. Um, there was absolutely a time when the social life at Catch was run on pipes of Sovereign at the local Samuel Smith's pub. 
called the White Horse on the corner of, of Rupert Street, for those that know so well, or the, the, the Sun and 13 Cantons. But that times are changing now. There's been a huge shift, I think, just in, in what constitutes culture. It's not just going out and buying everyone a pint on a Thursday night yeah. at all. And that's for the best, I think, for the better of, of everyone's mental health too. Working with a hangover, obviously, is no fun for anyone. But there is definitely a very long period of time where catch was fueled on kind of booze and, and crisps from the local pubs. And we became all very close and thick as thieves because of that. And I, yeah, a very fun and exciting part of my life for sure, which I'll always look back on fondly. And I'm still friends with all those people now. Oh, that's always good to hear, isn't it? But sorry, so, you asked me why I sell. Yeah. So in 2018, I took a conscious step back from client work. I was really involved in new business, but then I would also pretty much stayed throughout most projects as well to the end of when we would deliver the MVP or the first iteration, whatever that might be. But I took a step back from the getting involved during the delivery part to really concentrate on on the agency itself. Could I do to ensure that, yes, we're delivering great work, but how can we be as highly commercially successful as possible Mm. that would make us attractive as possible for a sale? Because that was my mindset shift in, in 2018. So that was working on optimizing our processes, the best reporting, detailed revenue forecasts, hiring the best people, creating the right management team, frankly, creating a management team, which we definitely had cemented before that. Vision, mission, and values. What products and services should we really be shouting and championing that we do? Clients, what clients should we be going after? We actually didn't have growth plans for clients. Mm -hmm. We we didn't really have anything like that. And really just having a highly optimized forecast, the best reporting we possibly could, and everything that I'd been either advised or had just felt myself that if we're going to be put on a growth path to sale, or rather if I'm going to get us on a growth path to sale, what is it we need to show in a potential acquirer that would make us as attractive as possible for that? That's not something you can do overnight. I'd started that in 2018, but the agency didn't sell till 2021. And in 2021, it's coming up to 15 years that I, in 2007, when I started it, and I was beginning to feel that my project was complete in a way. So my mm-hmm. project really, instead of being websites and apps and that sort of stuff and creative, which I love and still do, but my project really was pulling the levers of, of running the agency. And it was very rewarding to the optimization and therefore the, the profitability increase over that time. And the agency was running great. We had a great team, great people. But the problem when something becomes highly optimized is that for me, it began to feel a bit samey. There's only so much of that you can do before it becomes more of a case of then keeping it going without making any sort of significant pivots because we, you know, we were doing very well. So was that almost the scale of the challenge reducing? It wasn't challenging you as much at that point. I was also always heavily challenged because I just could not say no to new business as many times as I wanted to give that away. Would always find myself coming back to it because I love meeting new people, the challenges of trying to find common ground and, and work on what a solution could look like for someone that mm-hmm. drives me. I, I really enjoy that. So take the new business part away and then suddenly you're doing the optimization part of spreadsheets and tweaking. And I, I enjoy that, but I also enjoy the what comes with being the new business face of the agency as well. But when everything is highly optimized, it then is, it's more improving it in a small and incremental way, which I felt quite samey. 
So it was just good timing when I feel there must have been something in the water, possibly Q1 2021, possibly a bit of a COVID bounce back. But we suddenly had three interested parties in acquiring catch, each completely unrelated, two of which approached us out of the blue, literally dropped into my inbox. They'd done their research on LinkedIn. Interestingly, had also been looking at the key term Digital Agency London. <laughs> and one of which I was introduced to via an M&A consultant. So three very different organizations, two challenger media groups, I, I suppose I would call them Midmark, mm-hmm. UK-based, and one large consultancy firm from outside the UK looking to get a presence in London with highly recognized, like we were yeah. for UX, UI, and development, rapid prototyping, headless, all of the good, fun, exciting stuff that we were genuinely doing. I think a lot of agencies probably were talking more about that approach and we had been doing that, but without shouting about it for a number of years. Yeah. Yeah. And that actually, interestingly, I ended up having conversations with all those people who got in touch, I would say within a four and a half week period in around January 2021. So I think partially that was maybe a reaction from COVID potentially. We were still not in the thick of lockdown then, obviously, uh, in yeah. early 2021. But also we tended to file our return with HMRC and it would tend to get published around December. So actually was uh, looking at, and she's like, had their eye on, they would have got alerted that we had their accounts and we were looking good. We had a great level of working capital, cash in the business, et cetera. We had done consistently very well, 20% plus margin for, for well over three years. And... It was just quite unexpected to have the conversation with one individual, let alone three, generally at the same time, having preliminary due diligence with all three organizations within a few weeks of each other. So you were, you were literally, you, you went through to due diligence with all three? It was real lightweight stuff. So up front yeah. in your approach to begin with, uh, they need a certain level of basic data room, I would say, lightweight stuff around yeah. clients, revenue, profitability, reporting and stuff. All of those individual elements, which I personally have been working on, it felt since 2018. So this was really yeah. music to my ears very quickly. I could say, yes, we have that. We have that. Here's the spreadsheet, et cetera. Which in itself has got to be a real positive in their eyes. The fact that rather than, yeah, I'll get back to you in two weeks when I've cobbled this together. Yeah. The fact that you're showing a certain amount of, I guess, ability and discipline at that point. Yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. And it's, it's a, a key element of what any acquirer is looking for in an agency is that it is well run with exceptional reporting and visibility on the future forecast. And yes, of course, it's really important to have those three years of yeah, good looking profitability, but that's in the past. It's where are you going and how, are you, how can you prove that you can get there? So to have that structure that we had in terms of revenue forecasting, for example, as part of this quite involved budgeting model that we'd made for ourselves really was very useful to have. And also genuinely, actually, this is jumping forward a little bit in the story, but was looked upon really favorably and we even got some pretty complimentary comments about how the reporting systems that we had were some of the best that the eventual buyer of catches accountancy advisors said that yes, we had the, the best reporting that they'd seen in recent years. So that was really exciting because that's not all me. That was part CFO, part delivery director, part finance manager. That was a real team effort 
of many years of refining that. It wasn't one document we made one day, which then ran everything that took yeah. a long time from sort of 2018 when we started doing that properly. So three consecutive approaches. Why do you think cash stood out at that time? If these people were out shopping for an acquisition, yes, search results, fine. But why did you catch their eye? So one of the aspects that I, I always knew needed to be changed was that I always had this love-hate relationship with the generalist versus specialist. And I was constantly told and was reading that specialism begets high value. It's you are a high value individual or a high value organization if you have a specialism and not a generalist. And of course, being 44, the age I am, starting in the early noughties, that never sat well with me because I am a generalist. And I, I always try and make that very clear. But it was quite hard, I think, sometimes to differentiate ourselves as a digital agency. It's a hugely competitive industry, as you and would all know. And it's tough to differentiate yourself. So part of working on the business from 2018 was that whole vision, mission and values, but also our proposition. And we decided to sort of try and move away almost from being just a digital agency, which was a web design and build agency and optimization to we rebranded really as a digital platform agency, specializing in these large scale content managed multi-language websites. And when you have that specialism, it actually became a much simpler job to sell what you do. And it also attracted clients that had already made up their mind on what they wanted and were approaching yeah. you because you they know, even if they didn't know you personally, they have good faith from looking at your portfolio and, and et cetera, that you can deliver that solution yeah. for them. And that's when things really began to click into place. And then we, through the vision, mission and values, all internally could speak very eloquently about what it is that we do. Whereas before it was, oh, we do a bit of content and yeah, we, we do some social posts and oh, and there's back in the day, there was banner ads and oh, we can do that email marketing campaign for you as well as the website. And that, that was a difficult sell. That, yeah. that was confusing. Were you still doing a lot of the other things, but the oh. conversation was, this is what we do, or did you prune off and say, no. this is all that we do? Yes, that's right. Yeah. We, we became laser focused just on to design, build, and optimization of website platforms. So that's basically websites and apps. So we disbanded our, we had a dedicated content team until probably 2016, 2017, largely built off the back of the relationship. By that point, we were working for three or four brands for them internationally, producing even social posts. And we'd won Thomas Cook Airlines' social account, which we were retained for a year and a half to run that. And that, I flirted with the idea of peeling that off into a separate company for a while, hiring someone in to, to run that, et cetera. In fact, we even branded that as Cat Studios. That was very much riding that social content wave from 2014 to 2016. But that was never really core to the business and really where the drivers were in efficiency and, and profitability was always in the design and build. And that in itself is certainly from my experience was just seen to be a more valuable skill set for us to develop. It wasn't quite as commoditized as content had become in, in that. Mm-hmm. So I think to go back to your whole question about what it was, why did why were we attractive? It's because we had that laser focus and in-house skill set on the user experience. So that's the user research, defining who we're talking to from a, a UX interface point of view, developing 
those user journeys, interactive prototyping, applying the client's brand in a really slick, engaging, cool looking way, and then building out what is often a quite a large, complex piece of work. So content managed website for an international organization that needs 14 different languages and all kinds of back office integration with their CRM and whatever back office systems that they need us to integrate with. All of that was done in-house. A lot of what the old version of Catch, I would say, would be as in a you know, web design, digital, yeah. jack of all trades, would have the creative in-house. They might even have the strategy in-house. They certainly have the delivery from a, from a account management and project managers in-house. But quite often the development part of it would be a sort of ragtag bunch of freelancers coming in and out. Obviously, we had the challenge of offshoring and nearshoring became a really big thing in the sort of mid-teens, yeah. 2014 to 18. And we made a conscious decision actually to advertise the fact that, yes, we might be a bit more expensive. Our rate cut is what it is because we have a team internally of 15 developers, half the agency, just less than half the agency at any one time, give or take, were developers. So front-end, back-end yeah. way. Obviously, we have leads and, and senior people within that too. And that was, that's actually unusual. I, th I think a lot of agencies talk the talk that they have that in-house, but really they are freelancers with a revolving door of freelancers, which leads to technical debt, which leads to code being refactored, which just leads to complexity and ultimately yeah. complexity causes. How do you sell the value of that to a client though? Do, you know, I completely agree with you, but does the client care? Because... With the way, I think that goes back to what I was mentioning before, is that over time our clients shifted to digitally literate individuals with digital teams underneath them who potentially actually have their own development teams internally, but they would, the usual conversation we would have is they are so bogged down on the BAU, the business as usual, uh, and IT support in some instances of being this a huge international consumer electronics firm that there's no way that they will be able to produce this wonderful new shop front for us online across 21 different markets globally, that we need you to do that. Of course, we could do that internally, but it would take us three years. So let's give it to you. Yeah. So I think that they, having had their own teams to run internally, they understood the benefit of having someone sitting within the team with the knowledge transfer and the, the skills that come with being able to knowledge share with the team that you've worked with in a high functioning team yeah. for a long time, um, because we had quite good staff retention. And there, there is a, a value that you can pinpoint on that. And a big part of that is speed of delivery, delivering quickly, delivering on time and on budget. And every agency says they can do that. That becomes much harder when you have a revolving door of strangers or freelancers coming in and out. Don't get me wrong, we absolutely love our, our freelance developers and we would always have a significant amount of freelance developers. Yeah. Importantly, the reason why it worked for us is A, we would have long-term relationships with them, but B, they would fit into our existing framework of 15 plus developers internally. So they weren't just coming in and saying, this is how I'm going to run this front end build the way I want to run it because this is how I've always done it. They would come in and they would inherit our process, our QA process, the peer review process, et cetera. And I think that was something that when organizations started talking to us and they un Peeled the layers of the onion, as it were, of, of how we yeah. together. They were like, wow, that's what we need. Because ultimately, what each of these three businesses were looking to acquire to varying different degrees, but the core of it was a tech forward design and build agency, as opposed to a 
UX, UI first, and then a couple of developers in the corner. We were always weighted the other way, if that made sense. Yeah, makes sense. But it worked. You were attractive enough to get these three interested parties. Yeah. How far down the process did you get with each and how, how did it, and how did it filter down to one? Yeah. When it, you have to remember, it was a very weird time, sort of February, March, 2021, people still weren't back in the office. There was very few face-to-face, if any, meetings going on. There was a lot of these walk and talk meetings where you'd go and walk around Golden Square or maybe a field if you lived in Surrey or Kent or wherever. So we had, I actually didn't meet anyone in person. That came later. So I met with each of the teams several times on various video calls, so never actually in person. And it was really, it was a two-way beauty parade in a way. So it was me pitching cash to them, the benefit of what we could add to their business and them pitching to me why they would be a great place to be, yeah, to a, a great acquirer for catch. And like I said, we went through the lightweight due deal with all of them to get to ultimately the, the more senior people to talk to, yeah, all the way to the top actually in all three of the, of the businesses. And very quickly, Sideshow felt right to me. And I think it wasn't complicated, really. It was that I respected Tony Hill, who's the, the founder of um, Sideshow, now Sideshow Group, because despite the fact that at the time it was some four or 500 people big, he was still the CEO. And I like mm-hmm. that he had lived that entrepreneurial journey himself of building and running an agency. Usually at the point where you're 150 or 200 people, that's going to be then a career CEO that has been brought in by the, the group that owns you or, or the, the independent agency. But he really, everything mm-hmm. that a personal touch was incredibly personable himself. And I could very much see that his vision for Sideshow very much aligned with the vision that me and the senior management team had for Catch. And importantly, he would talk more about the star than he would about the work. And that, that was a key indicator of the right culture because ultimately you can be acquired, but if the culture doesn't gel and if your values don't align, then it's going to be a really difficult situation for everybody. Yeah. And I, I felt that very quickly that they were the right home potentially for us. This is all just talking, obviously. So we obviously had a long way to go at that point because you then move into exclusivity. So the other deals fell away and we jumped into bed, as it were, for one of a better into due diligence. So we appointed our advisors for the deal, so our finance and legal teams. And we, yeah, we moved to exclusivity uh, and due diligence started with Sideshow. It was a private equity backed deal with Waterland and our advisors in one of the first sort of all hand meeting we had, you know, there are you know, a lot of people, there's a lot of moving parts. You have your legal, you have finance, you've got teams on both sides for that. You then have the senior management team. We have the additional complexity of, of private equity firm be, being involved on the calls as well. And our advisors fell off their chairs when Sideshow and Waterland made clear that they wanted to complete due diligence in just six weeks. And uh, it was a hugely intense period, but we did it. My yeah. six and a half, seven weeks. But actually, what was the driver for that? Because for a deal the size that yours clearly was, that's, that's quite an aggressive pace, I think we'll put it. Yeah, I think private equity potentially was driving that. I think that six weeks, when you consider that 
do you deal for a deal of art type can take three months. And that, that was a phenomenal effort from everybody involved on, yeah. on both sides. And what I really liked about that though, is it proves you can do it. You could have yeah. a very in-depth and well thought through and rigorous process. It doesn't have to take 12 weeks. Uh, we did it in six. And I, th- I would caveat that and add, if you've done the prep work, because you've clearly yeah. spent all that time getting ready. And I would have shoot a lot of that due diligence of the stuff where you've got, yeah, brilliant. I've been working on this for the last year. I've got, I've got a lot of this to hand. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So running an agency well and preparing for due diligence are the same thing. And we had been preparing for due diligence since 2018. And of course, yeah. with the lightweight data room that we had to put together for the three potential acquirers up front, had meant that their advisors, so Lewis Silkin and Eight Advisory, had already had a glimpse into what we had to show. So I'd like to think that they wouldn't have even attempted to say six weeks if they didn't think it was possible based yeah. on the data and the documentation that we'd sent them and, and the few hours of top-level phone calls we'd had before. But we, we did it. It was hugely intense, like I mentioned. It was all I was able to focus on, really, along with our CFO and, and supporting players at, at Catch and the advisors, of course, for that time. And I, I was only able to do that with confidence that the agency would still run itself really well because of this great team that we'd mm. place that were there running the agency daily and doing a fantastic job of that. It's a common story that over those three months of due diligence that it tends to be obviously the manager that's doing the new business or is over relied on in a business that the wheels fall off in that three months. You miss a couple of pitch opportunities or your pitching doesn't go well because you're trying to write the decks in the evening and have phone calls in the morning. But ultimately you're talking to lawyers and accountants for you know, hours every week going through due diligence. And I had effectively been, for want of a better term, trying to make myself redundant since 2018 to try and hire the smartest people in the room that would do a much better job of running catch than I could. So I could focus on actually the lever pulling, as I mentioned, and ultimately all mm. that led up to this event. So does that fast due diligence, does that short due diligence period equate to it being smooth? Were there any surprises and bumps and areas of concern? I'd love to say that I have a really juicy story about, oh, it nearly fell apart on the last day, but no, it didn't. It was... We, like I said, we felt like we'd been preparing for it for a while. Yeah. I, I think we ran a really honest and transparent business. That I think potentially was one of the other reasons that we, we were attractive is there really were no skeletons in the closet. We had an incredible revenue recognition process, which is, was specifically one of the, the processes that Eight Advisory commented on being one of the best that they've seen. And that, that was, incredible. I made sure that everyone that was involved in creating that revenue recognition process knew that that was the feedback that we got because that, that's amazing to get that from a professional mm. services organization who day in, day out, look at the way that businesses report their revenue and to uh, accrue and defer those all important figures. We obviously, we, we had to go back and forth as you do with whatever mm-hmm. final figures are going to be, but it really wasn't something where one morning I thought, oh God, I really hope they don't discover this because the deal yeah. going to fall away. They're, I went in with as much confidence as I could, but I also went in, if I'm honest, thinking this won't happen. I didn't mm. allow myself to get, I took it 
day by day stuff at the time, I didn't allow myself to get sidetracked or over excited about the exit, the, the numbers, the, the money, anything like that about the slightly more intangible life that was by afterwards. Because I think that, like I said, catch was doing well and I was enjoying it. And so I tried to remain grounded by thinking there's absolutely nothing wrong with me continuing to run this business for the next 10 years because I love the work and I love the people who I work with. So I definitely wasn't selling it because, oh my God, I wanted to get out of it and I was stressed and I was working long hours. had a really great work-life balance at that point. And I think that my view is if it works out, this is fantastic. And if it doesn't work out, this is going to have been a great life experience and I can come back stronger and be ready for the next time. So when did the sale complete? The sale completed on the day, the Thursday before the bank, ho- the August bank holiday weekend. So actually we had quite hard stop. So it's, I would definitely would not recommend finalizing a deal the day before a bank holiday, moving into that short week, the four day week when every yeah. single advisor was going on holiday with their family. So one of the other reasons potentially why we did get it done in, in the short period that we did was just through the virtue of everyone was going away for the next week. Yeah. Weeks in some instances, I know I was. So we really had to get it done. And remember, I was in Portugal with my family and I co-wrote the press release from sitting in the apartment we'd rented, had its own swimming pool in the middle of um, the Alentejo region of Portugal with a beer in my hand and the swimming pool when the sunset was going down and my little three-year-old son at the time was swimming around and I pressed publish to let the whole world know on, on the, yeah. this was happening. We did the blog post and just sat there. I can't actually remember where my partner Amory was, but I remember sitting there somewhere and watching my son paddle around in the swimming pool, having a beer and, and just cheersing myself. But there was really, I don't want to say there was an anti-climax, but there was nothing to do at that point because it was done. Everybody went on holiday that week in August when everyone's off anyway. But I was, I felt like I was a bit alone when that happened, just sitting there with my laptop. But of course, that was only the start of then the next phase of the journey. That was an odd time to be away and telling everyone and not be, obviously everyone catch knew we'd, we'd kept the yeah. old in, in as much as we legally could. But yeah, that, that was a, a strange experience to be sitting there with a beer on my own. In your head, you think you might be in a party type situation with friends and colleagues popping uh, champagne, but that certainly wasn't that. I think the, the anticlimax of the sale seems to be a bit of a common theme. I, you know, I was alone in the office with everyone work from home and got off the Zoom call, sat down, what's next? Looked at it and went, well, I've got a lot of meetings booked tomorrow because I now have a job. <laughs> and, you know, it's a strange one, isn't it? Did you, was, was there any, beyond that moment over the sort of the coming days, was there a a celebration of any sort was, did you succumb to the mad purchase? <laughs> was there, a, the holiday was a celebration itself. Yeah. It was wonderful to be away with my family, my young son. So that, that was great. But actually what, truth be told, one of the most attractive aspects that Tony spent a long time giving me great confidence in was that the agencies that they acquire, they're acquiring them for the success that they've made for themselves and their brand. They're not looking to acquire warm bodies and subdue them into yeah. a bigger team, get rid of the brand, get rid of the clients. There multiple times we had the conversation where he just said, I'm very much looking for you and the team to 
run catch as you want to run catch and keep going. Because ultimately we're buying catch as the organization yeah. because of the success that catch has had over the years. We don't want to change that. We are a lightweight, hands-off organization. And that really spoke to me. The consultancy route would have been completely the opposite. That would have mm. not just in, in hours worked per week, but in integration that there wasn't so much an integration as a swallowing of the agency that they were looking to acquire. There was really no desire to retain the catch brands. Yeah. So actually, when I came back to the UK and just got on with it, work on the Monday, it was business as usual. And really, mm -hmm. it only the integration part greatly took up my time and some of the senior management team's time too. But the whole point and one of the benefits of going with Sideshow's offer is that essentially it was going to be business as usual. Yeah. And that was also very attractive, but with the support that comes from being in a bigger group and part of something bigger, the referrals, the, the team, et cetera, skill sets that can be cross-build, et cetera. And so I'd love to say that it was very different on day one, but, but actually it wasn't. Possibly it was more different for me more than anyone else because I had to suddenly go and do this sort of beauty parade meeting with these 12 other heads of these other agencies, yeah. the back office team and the CFO. And, and I really enjoyed all of that process. I, it was excellent because ultimately you're meeting guys and girls in your situation that have been through very similar emotive events that you have that have the stresses every day of, of running a high-functioning agency. Some years you do well, some years you don't do so well. Mm -hmm. Pitches you win, some pitches you don't win. Immediately you've got a rapport there. It was great to actually, the owners of these, the heads, of course not the owners anymore, but the heads of these other agencies. And yeah, some incredibly talented people. And some of which, in fact, I had, one I had lunch with on Friday. So you're in close contact. Business as usual, I guess, you know, that comes as part of the deal. What was your commitment post-sale? So I, I had a year earnout, which was also very attractive. Mm. Don't necessarily like the term earnout. I know the acquired mm. term earnout, but it's essentially the minimum duration that you would legally be able to stay in the terms of your new employment contract with the acquirer. And that's rare, if I'm honest, a year. That's good for the seller. Normally that would be three years, which... I think people are used to. And interestingly as well, by the time that everything completed, actually, we allowed me to include the three months worth of conversations within that year. So I actually only had nine months. And there, we'd also just won the World Wildlife Fund's website optimization and support account, which is a really big 30 something grand a month retainer. So the feeling was jubilant in the agency. Mm. It was great to be working with such a, a well-known charitable organization who doesn't love animals, right? That was yeah. a real high when we won that. It's fantastic. So the integration for me, I think with Sideshow was, you know, I guess was probably more exposed to it the most. It was more of a pleasure than a chore, I would say, as it you know, would have been a chore with something like a large consultancy, I'd guess. How did you find it essentially having a boss for the first time in, I'm not going to do the maths, in some time? Yeah. Yeah. Long day of 15 years. There was... Realistically, I suppose the relationship between myself, the CFO, the CEO was very much around strategy, which is something they were very passionate about, something that I was very keen to make sure that we were able to keep going how we were going. And, and they were true to their word, everything that they said during six months or so of conversations before we went into the deal proper, as it were. 
that they came true on. There was some adjusting of reporting, especially around financials. I think the way we accounted for full-time and freelance, but this is all administrative detail. Mm-hmm. It's definitely not belittling the, the effort, of course, that our finance manager had to put into that. She did an you know, incredible job as well. But I think that the relationship I had with them really was like we'd worked together for a really long time. And I think the reason for that is that for the reasons I gave earlier about how Tony had grown this agency himself and so was in a very, had a very similar life experience to all of the other leaders um, of agencies that he'd, he'd acquired over the years. They're very easy to get on with and great guys to talk with and be supported by. Nice to hear. 12 month earnout, that's now ended. Yes, I could have worked there forever. As many, okay, it's good. So, the decision to leave at the end of my now was largely driven by the timing of my son starting school in the September twenty three. So, if I could leave work around sort of September twenty two, that would give my family a year of fun, and we could go on holiday whenever we wanted before getting stuck in that trap of school holidays, Christmas, yeah. summer, etc. So. Yeah, I made the decision to hand my notes in and leave at the end of the kind of the, the minimum lock-in period, which has left me a little less than a year of being able to go away with family, show Finn, who's my son, the, all kinds of different interesting experiences. Like we drove across France to watch the Tour de France in the Alps. We went to Spain, Jackson Hole, Los Angeles, hopefully all of which you'll remember in the future and hopefully it will help shape him to be a, a well-rounded young individual. But he is four, of course. What a fantastic opportunity to be able to do that. Yeah, lots of pictures keep reminding him. So yeah. it, it, yeah. it cements in his memory. Yeah. But I mean, it's not entirely true that I took the entire year off without any kind of professional endeavours at all. I, I did promise my partner that I, I would, but I get you can't help that entrepreneurial spirit sometimes. So apart from holidays. I've been advising a few startups I've invested in, but one thing that did surprise me was the number of agency owners who reached out to me after, I guess, they saw the the deal advertised. Some of whom I, I knew personally just from working in the industry, but actually most who yeah, had just seen the announcement or had been you know referred to a friend of a friend or whatever. And they just wanted a video call to talk about really how I sold it, a common theme was what's involved. And it usually always ended up with recommendations that we well, should speak to this lawyer or this accountant or this advisor, or have you got your revenue recognition sorted? These are the type of things you need for due diligence. You need to yeah. start this journey now because it's going to take you a number of years if you don't have this stuff already. And I really enjoyed doing that. Like I said, yeah, I guess that's why I, I love the sort of the selling catch, the new business part of selling catch to potential clients to help build their products was the talking to people and, and meeting people and understanding their own challenges and stories. Draft Partners has been born out of that really. So we've just launched a new breed of growth NA advisory. So Draft Partners has been really born out of that, those conversations. I, I realized I had a bit of a, a unique niche experience in terms of having had that experience of growing a successful agency to a you know successful exit liquidity event. But also I really loved the due diligence, which people find me quite strange. But I really enjoyed being able to answer authoritatively every question that was put to us because we had prepared 
so much for it without necessarily consciously meaning to prepare for, for just by getting things done yeah. right and properly in advance. Absolutely. Yeah. A clear growth plan, clarity around commercial model, historic performance, workable forecast, pipeline, the pricing, resourcing, and ultimately identifying areas where profit can be improved. I didn't have these very in-depth conversations with every agency leader that I spoke to. Yep. But ultimately it was like, oh, have you got this? Have you got that? How's your resourcing? How's your recognized revenue? What does your pipeline look like? And then I was thinking, do I actually have something quite niche here? I just keep referring people. But actually I realized that could be something that I would get a huge amount of enjoyment from helping other agencies on their growth path to ultimately to, to sale. Yeah. So yeah, Draft Partners has been born out of that. Ultimately, what we have is we've gathered together some excellent advisors across deal-making, financial and legal, all of whom either personally helped me sell my own agency. So I've been yeah. with them for at most 12 years, at minimum two or three, or who have worked individually on, on deals in the agency space regularly. So we now have this rather wonderful collection of skills and under one roof, one-stop shop for want of another term to be able to set you as an agency leadership team on a path ultimately to sell. Because like I mentioned, to run an agency well is to prepare for due diligence. And if you have these certain things in place, not only will you become more efficient, become more profitable, you will then be creating something of increasing value over time and you will get approached or you can decide to go to market. And we also have the ability to help support with that. That is the new adventure and it's a month old, so it's very early days. Yeah, I'm excited about it. Yeah. Forward to wherever that takes us next. So if, if agency owners are listening and like most agency owners wondering about a sale, either at some point in the future or sooner, who are the right agencies to give you a call? Who are you a good fit for? Oh, great question. So the type of agency that I think we can really add value to not so much the type to be that performance marketing, UX or development. It's more the understanding of coming in and helping you objectively looking from the outside in. It's the whole wood for the trees analogy. When you're an agency leader, running your agency on a daily basis, it can really pay dividends long-term to have an external advisory team come in and just help you focus on what it is you should be focusing on and being there on hand to help you longer term if needs be. One of the key things that we're doing differently at Draft Partners is we've created this lean, we're using lean and agile principles learned from our time in agency and mm-hmm. wine that to the M&A and growth journey. I think my experience and personal experience is that sometimes that, that process can be a bit overly weighty with expensive retainers and you get a giant 128 page PowerPoint document to go through about how you should be improving your business and, and you read that once and then ultimately it goes in a drawer. Yeah. So I think that a lightweight framework, giving you clarity about commercial model, historic performance, forecasting and pipeline reporting as well, and really coming in and helping you identify where profit can be improved. That sounds very financial, but also on, on top of that, of course, we have all of the lived experience to share about proposition, vision, mission, and values, slightly more intangible aspects of agency life, which actually very much do add to that value and can help create high-functioning, successful teams that really feel like a true team rather than a set of individuals, which in this kind of remote working first world has been a big challenge. Wonderful. I'll put the link in the show notes. Anyone can follow from there. I like to wrap up 
with a couple of questions. The first one would be, if you had a time machine and you could go back and change any part of your past journey now, what does the benefit of hindsight make you think, oh, do you know what? It was okay, but this is what we should have done differently. Good question. I know I said that I made the conscious decision in 2018 to start on that growth journey where I reversed out of client delivery work and really just focus on the agency. I actually would have started on that growth path even earlier. I think stepping back from the client work and trying to make the agency as commercially successful as I could, that could have been quite exciting. But actually, I think that's probably a key message to any, like you mentioned, agency owner listening to this, looking to start their own growth journey. Why do you think it took you until that time to do that? Because agency founder wearing many hats, yeah. occasionally dipping into Figma, doing some design, occasionally doing a little bit of, I don't know, it's CSS, also doing new business, also running the PR. I think that is a, a very well trodden and told story that probably anybody listening that, that yeah. started an agency had, had done that. And I think the key challenge is how do you move from almost being a sort of used to joke that I was like an accidental agency leader. It just grew up around me almost and I grew up with it. But I think that there's a big difference between being that, that founder and actually being the MD and running an agency as an MD should. And that sometimes means making tough decisions. I loved working on the client work and I really mm. enjoyed seeing the products that we made come to life. I loved doing creative reviews. I was also the creative director for a number of years in the early days of Catch. And I, I had to give that up if I wanted to really deliver on the challenge of actually creating something that was successful that somebody at some point was going to want to purchase. And I know I said I was going to end in two questions and I've already done two, but my, my very last question, would you ever be tempted to start an agency again? Never say never, right? It's not where my head is at now, me personally. However, of course, one of the benefits of being able to shape draft partners in the way that I find interesting personally allows me to get under the hood of a huge different range of agencies that we're talking to and, and we'll be working with next year. So while I'm not responsible for them anymore, which I'm, I'm quite happy about that, I definitely feels like I haven't stepped away, if that makes sense. And that feel part of the world without having to run the agency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, but you can still feel incredibly, that feeling of feeling that the process is, is very rewarding, even if it's not yours. If, you know, the, the idea that you help someone tweak that lever or improve that area of their agency, which then ultimately makes them more profitable, they're happy, you're happy. It's a win. It's, it's a good feeling. Jonathan, thank you so much for spending time with us and speaking so openly about the experience. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I've learned lots. I'm sure listeners will as well. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Matt. Thanks very much for inviting me. That was fun. Thanks very much. Cheers. Thank you to Jonathan for taking time to share all that with us. If you'd like to get in contact with Jonathan, you can do so through draftpartners.co.uk. You'll also find links to that website and Jonathan's LinkedIn profile in the show notes for this episode. You can find those and previous episodes of the podcast at howtosellanagency.com. That's also the place to look if you want to get in contact with me, whether that be to discuss coming on the show or to learn more about how I work with agencies as an advisor, mentor and non-exec. Thanks for joining me. I hope you'll do so again next time we discuss how to sell an agency. Hold up. 